are now listening to PursuitCast, the official podcast of Pursuit NYC. May it be an encouragement to you today and stir your soul for revival. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. I shared this at our last gathering, um, the first gathering of this year. And myself and our team, we really believe that this year is going to be a year of victory. Like, I really personally believe that we're going to see victory in so many different areas of our life. We're going to see, um, <laughs> just holding the victory sign, we're going to see victory with long prayers that we've been praying for years finally answered. I feel like we're going to see victory in certain addictions and bondages to sin that have held us down in our personal life. And I honestly and truly believe this with the bottom of my heart. I feel like this year we're going to see victory in the church and there's going to be a new move of God. Amen. There's going to be a new move of God personally in your life and corporately to the church. But I think it's interesting that 2019 is a year of victory because it comes right after a year where I think many of us have possibly experienced quite the opposite. Like, I don't know what 2018 was like for you personally, but I felt like there were moments and experiences during the year where I just felt crushed and bruised and overwhelmed by different circumstances. Um... Like, 2018 was interesting because I felt like I saw God move more than ever before. Like, I saw Jesus heal a tumor. I saw him open blind eyes right in front of me. And so, I got to see God move more powerfully than ever. But at the same time, there were so many moments where I just did not have control and circumstances were so overwhelming. Like, at the beginning of this time last year, my family had to file for bankruptcy and we were in the process of losing our home. And then with, along with that, with all these other different circumstances, Everything was just out of my control. Everything was out of my hands. And by the end of the year, I was left feeling jaded, confused, misunderstood, angry. Have any, did anyone else feel like that at the end of 2018? Right? Some of you guys did. And I, and I think that some of us were carrying these things from 2018 into 2019. And what's meant to be a year of victory is slowly becoming a year of hopelessness. And so some of you guys have been facing circumstances that are beyond you. And you're like, God, where are you? Could this really be a year of victory in my life? Some of you or one of your family members have received a health diagnosis that seems all too overwhelming. There's no quick and easy answer. Some of you guys right now, you guys are in relationships or your friendships, and it seems like forgiveness and reconciliation will never, ever happen. And some of you guys have been praying for someone or for something, yet prayer after prayer, nothing seems to be changing. Nothing seems to be moving. And so what do you do when your circumstances feel also overwhelming and dark? What do you do? How do you overcome hopelessness? Well, I believe in our scripture today, there's a, there's a man named Ahaz who felt the same way we do sometimes. And God sends him a prophet to give him a word to strengthen him in overwhelming circumstances. And I believe that it can strengthen us tonight. And I believe that it can transition us into a year of victory. Amen? So turn with us to Isaiah chapter 7. Starting from verse 1, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaya, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. 
Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road of the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, be keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Resident and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, Ramalia's son, have plotted ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resident. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Turn to the person next to you and say, stand firm in your faith. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, Yehazah David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating herds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of these two kings you tread will be laid waste. Amen. That's the word of God. Let's just bow our heads quickly in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for everything that you're doing. And Lord, we're thankful for everything that you're going to do tonight. Lord, that there's going to be an exchange that takes place tonight where we lay down our sorrows and our ashes and instead we receive your joy and your oil. So we thank you, we love you, we honor you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most um, hopeless moments for me in 2018 was when I had to leave my church's mission trip to Ivory Coast, Africa. And to briefly describe what happened, our trip got off to the worst possible start ever. First, our night flight at Newark got delayed, so we were stuck at the airport until 3 a.m. Second, um, the delay called us, caused us to miss our layover flight from Togo to Ivory Coast. And so we had to stay overnight in another African country. And then lastly, because of that, we were going to miss out on one full day of ministry. Um, and our first few days of ministry was this family camp that we were hosting in a village called Gagno. And so our team, we were planning for months beforehand playing for months and months about this family camp. And so people were disappointed that, man, we're going to miss the actual first full day of this camp. But eventually, we arrive in Gagna and um, the second day of the family camp, and our mission team gets started right away. They're excited. Um, they're getting their feet wet. They're serving in a variety of different ways. And as a leader of the team, at this point, I'm thinking, like, okay, we got off to a bad start, but it looks like everything is slowly becoming what I thought it would be. Like, every, we're slowly getting back on track. And I was even more excited because on that night, on the second night of the family camp, we host this revival worship service where we invite the entire village and we just go after Jesus and we just see people get healed, um, delivered, and saved. And so usually about like 200 to 300 adults and children all come out. And so it was just really, really exciting. 
And so even leading up to the trip during the training time, I would hype it up to my team and I'd be like, guys, this revival worship service is where it's all that. Like all the other parts of the mission trip, like I could care less, but this revival worship service, this is where people get healed, this is where people get saved, this is where people get delivered. And so I'm super excited because finally, finally after delay, finally after a layover, finally after missing one full day, we're gonna see Jesus do what he does best and everything will get back on track. Well, the revival worship service begins, and there's music playing, people are gathering, and, and just the atmosphere is great, and the worship starts, and everyone's just singing and dancing before God. And in Africa, they like, like they just constantly just go in circle of worship and worship, and it's just crazy. But the atmosphere is just full of energy. But about 10 minutes into worship, there's this huge commotion in the front. And I turn and look, and it looked like someone fell off the stairs leading Someone fell off the stairs leading up to the church and was convulsing on the ground. Now, if you're not familiar with African spirituality, um, you know, when, when someone starts convulsing on the ground, they're like hypersensitive about spiritual attacks. So everyone thinks that, like, you know, the demonic attack is happening. So there's uproar by the Ivorian pastors and leaders just speaking in tongues and it's just nuts. And then to add to the chaos, we find out that the person who actually fell off the stairs was Pastor Willie, the local church head pastor of that village. So just imagine with me the situation. There's chaos for people trying to grab control of the situation. There's fear amongst the crowd because the adults and children don't really know what's going on. And people are just trying to discern whether this is a demonic attack or not. And after about five to ten minutes after praying for him, um, Pastor Willie just seems lifeless. And so we, we, we drive him off to the local hospital and later that night, we actually found out that Pastor Willie had suffered a heart attack in that very moment and passed away. And so it was just a confusing and sobering moment. The circumstance of witnessing someone pass away right in front of you, it just seemed all too overwhelming. And so myself and our team, we were just asking questions like, how could this have happened in a worship setting of all places? How could our trip in the first 48 hours go through all this stuff? Like, God, what does the rest of our mission trip look like? And Ahaz also finds himself in an overwhelming situation. In the first verse of our story today, we see that the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria are at war with the kingdom of Judah. Now Ahaz, he's an evil king, and he, he was the king of Judah, and he did not follow the ways of God. And so God gave him into the hands of these two other kings. And if you read the parallel accounts of 2 Kings 18 and 2 Chronicles 28, you'll see that these two kings are pretty formidable. Like the king of Syria, he like killed 120,000 people at this point. And the king of Israel, he took captive 200,000 people. And now these two kings were joining together to plan a coup against Ahaz and establish a puppet king instead. And that's why in verse 2, Ahaz and the people of Judah, it says what? It says, their hearts shook as the trees shake before the wind, that they were in fear. Now Ahaz is only 20 years old, 20 years old at this point, and yet he's responsible for an entire kingdom. At 20 years old nowadays in our generation, in our day and age, let's be honest, we're not really responsible for much, right? So we're like, we come up with these hashtags, a hashtag adulting. Like I folded my laundry the same day I washed it, hashtag adulting, right? Man, I, I, I cooked a meal for myself without using the microwave, hashtag adulting. But Ahaz, at 20 years old, he's responsible for an entire kingdom at this time. So he was literally shaking in his boots because he was fearful and anxious because the circumstance seemed all too overwhelming and hopeless. So in verse 4, God sends his prophet Isaiah to strengthen Ahaz, and he says what? He says, be careful, be quiet, 
Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. The first thing that God commands in Ahaz is not fear because fear leads to hopelessness. Turn to the person next to you and say, fear leads to hopelessness. Fear leads to hopelessness. And hopelessness is this. It's defined as this in the dictionary. A lack of optimism and passion. A lack of expectation that there will be future improvement or success. So people experiencing hopelessness might say phrases like this. My situation will never get better. I have no future. No one can help me. I feel like giving up. It's too late. I will never be happy again. And so you see, underneath all of these phrases of hopelessness is what? It's fear. Think about how fear and hopelessness work. And in overwhelming circumstances, you feel the immediate and present moment, right? You feel the fear in the immediate and present moment, but what do you do immediately after? You jump to the future and you imagine it to be just as bad or even worse than your present circumstance, right? Like even this week, I felt like this bump and this pain in my groin area, so what's the first thing I do? I go to Google and I type up, I type up bump in the groin area, at least WebMD, you guys know about WebMD, right? And they list you all the possible things and bam, cancer. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have cancer. And then I think like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in so much pain for the rest of my life if it's cancer. Oh, I have to get treatment, but I don't have insurance, so I'm going to be poor for the rest of my life because I have to pay it off. Oh my gosh, what girl's going to want to marry me if I'm poor? I'm going to end up sick, poor, and lonely, right? How many of you guys have done that before? Okay, not to that extreme, but you guys know what I'm talking about, right? And it's crazy how fear not only affects the present, but it affects the future, with hopelessness being the standard in between. That's good. My professor, he describes hopelessness like this. He says, hopelessness, anxiety, depression, and fear are the languages of hell. They allow you to feel the pain of a future that hasn't even happened to you in the present. I'm going to say that one more time. Hopelessness is the language of hell. They allow you to feel the pain of a future that hasn't even happened to you in the present. And so hopelessness keeps you paralyzed because fear convinces you that nothing will get better. Nothing will improve. Hopelessness even prevents you from the simple thing that God allows you to do, like dreaming. From enjoying life to the fullest. Like, you know the people in life that have, like, they live by this rule or this mantra, like, man, I don't live with expectations because I keep my standards low, or, like, I don't want to be disappointed in life. You guys know people like that? Do you know what that is? That's a manifestation of hopelessness. You're thinking that the best thing that you can do for yourself is limit the possibilities of disappointment, but in reality, it just keeps you from truly living. You're with me. And so hopelessness becomes the standard of your life that this is the best it'll ever get rather than the truth that the best is yet to come. But look at verses 7 through 9. Read with me. It says, It shall not, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Sirius Damascus and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God tells Ahaz, listen, the attack won't even happen. The coup won't even come to pass. Don't worry, Ahaz. Be still. Don't fear. And then look at what God says about the other king. First, regarding the king of Syria, he's like, yeah, he's the head of Damascus, but psh, it's just resin, right? It's just resin. He's only relevant in the story because I allow him to be. And then look what he says about the king of Israel. He says, yeah, he's the head of Samaria, but even within 65 years, the kingdom of Ephraim will be shattered. 
And so God is reminding Ahaz, hey, these kings and kingdoms won't last, but the promise that I have given to you stands forever. Because do you guys remember the promise that God gave to David when he put him on the throne? He promised David that his heirs, which includes Ahaz, would forever sit on the throne of Jerusalem. And so underlying God's command to Ahaz to stand firm in his faith is the promise that God gave to David years before that his heirs would always sit on the throne of Jerusalem. So if you look at the bigger picture here for a second, what's at stake here is not only the safety of the kingdom of Judah, but the very possibility of God's promise that lasted from generations to generations to generations being being broken at this possible moment. Because if the attacks by the kings were to come true, that if they were to come to pass, if they were successful, then the very word and promise of God becomes void. And so if there's anyone that should be shaking in his boots, it should be God. Because not only is there something circumstantially at stake, but there's something eternal at stake. That God's reputation, his promise, his word is on the line at this very moment. But God's not shaking. He's not fearful. He's not hopeless. His kingdom is unshakable. His promise is faithful. His words are true. And so he commands Ahaz to what? To stand firm in faith. To trust God. When circumstances seem shakable, what's the, what's the real question that we're asking in our hearts? It's a matter of trust. Can I trust him? Can I take him for his word? Will he do what he says he will do? And I want to encourage every single person here tonight that in trying circumstances, When your faith is shaken, remember that God is trustworthy because he keeps his word. Amen? Amen. That God keeps his word. That your faith may be shaken, but the faithfulness of God stands firm. And God will not allow the promises and the word that he's spoken into your life to come void. He's too faithful and trustworthy to let you down. And if he hasn't failed you, and he hasn't failed David from generations to generation, why would he stop coming through for us now, right? And so God is telling Ahaz to take him for his word. And if that isn't enough for Ahaz, God, out of his goodness, confirms his promise with a sign, right? Let's look at verse 14. It says what? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. The sign that God confirms his promise isn't a bigger military, it's not better resources, it's not an alliance with the most powerful empire at the time, but rather the sign that God gives to Ahaz is himself. Emmanuel, God with us. That deliverance won't come through all of those other things that you can put your hope in, but deliverance will come through the very person who comes and intervenes into your life because he's a promise keeper. Amen? He's Emmanuel. I mean, think about that for a second. At this very moment, God could have revealed himself to Ahaz as God the powerful, God the mighty, God the deliverer. But instead, he reveals himself as Emmanuel, God with us. Because it's all about his presence. It's his presence that's faithful with us in all seasons and circumstances. It's his presence that's powerful enough to deliver us out of situations. It's his presence that's more comforting than any solution or strategy that man could ever offer. It's his presence that allows us to face any situation, no matter how dark, no matter how overwhelming, no matter how trying they are. And so we can trust in him because he's not this distant God out there, but he's a God who draws near and he intervenes himself. And this is the hope we carry. 
This is the hope that we carry. Now, the prophecy in Isaiah 7, it's a double fulfillment prophecy, meaning that it was fulfilled during the time in Isaiah 7. It was, it was fulfilled through Isaiah's wife giving birth to a son, but it was later fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1 at another point in the history of God's people where God's people were perhaps even more hopeless than Ahaz in Isaiah 7. You see, by this point of history, the temple of God was destroyed and rebuilt. Israel was under the rule of Rome, and, when, and it's been 400 years since the last prophet spoke. So imagine how the people of God, the people, people of Judah are feeling at this time. Number one, they're disappointed because the promises of God seem broken, right? Number two, they were overwhelmed because God said that he would protect them and deliver them, yet they were under the rule of the most evil and oppressive empire at the time in Rome. And lastly, they felt hopeless because God said that he would never leave nor forsake them in Deuteronomy chapter 31, 8. But at this very moment in Matthew chapter 1, his presence is nowhere to be found. But what happens in Matthew chapter 1? An angel of the Lord appears before Joseph and says, You're going to have a son, and he shall be called named Jesus. And he will be Emmanuel. That he will be the very fulfillment of God's promise 700 years ago in Isaiah 7. That his incarnation into the world would embody God's saving presence as Emmanuel. And so Jesus came, right? He came as a helpless babe. He healed people of their sicknesses. He set people free. He built friendships and he laughed with his disciples. He ate in the homeless sinners. He cried with Martha and Mary. And Jesus ultimately lived among his people. At just the time when the people of God, that God had abandoned them, God has sent his own son to prove to us that God never goes back on his word. And so when your circumstances seem shaky, Jesus is the ultimate proof that we can, change the, we can trust the unchangeable promise of the unchangeable king. Jesus is the proof. And what I love about this intervention out of all the other interventions in the Bible is that all the other interventions that God intervenes, they're momentary. But this intervention of Jesus coming as Emmanuel, it's permanent. That it was a message that God is here to stay. That God's not going to abandon you. He's here to stay. That this isn't just a one-time manner for today. That this isn't just a one-time parting of the Red Sea. That this isn't just a merely an answer to a, to, a, to a prayer or just a miraculous provision for a moment's need, but Jesus came to ransom, Jesus came to restore, Jesus came to save, not for a moment, but forever. And this is the reason why we have to hope in all circumstances. That hope didn't arrive in a politician, hope didn't arrive in money, hope didn't arrive in a system or another nation, or another nation, but hope arrived in the person of Jesus Christ, who does not change, who purposes never waver, and, and who always promises to be God with us forever. It's the unchanging nature of who Jesus is that secures our hope in him. It's the only thing that will secure you. Because everything else that you place your hope in life, it's going to shift, it's going to change, but the unchanging nature of Jesus secures our, our hope and is an anchor for our soul so that we can confidently carry the expectation that God will come through no matter what we face. And that's what hope is. It's the expectation that God will do what he said he will do. Turn to the person and say, God will do what he said he will do. It's the expectation that God will do what he says he will do. That it's not just about, it isn't just a feeling. It's not just about being optimistic, but it's confidence. 
It's a confident sense of expectation on something that is absolute and sure. And so Jesus is our hope, and our hope is based in him, and our hope is realized in him. And so therefore, I can hope that everything he said will be fulfilled in my life because my promises are from him and of him. I can hope that everything that Jesus purchased for us on the cross, peace, joy, love, freedom, that they will be manifested in my life. I can hope that Jesus himself will fully manifest himself and be with me in every season of my life, no matter what I go through. Because James chapter 117 says what? That our hope is based on the one who never changes. But my favorite thing about hope is this. Hope isn't a belief that God prevents all bad and hard things in life. Rather, hope is a belief that God works through all things. Because in Romans 8, chapter 28, it says what? That God works together for all, God makes all things work together for the good of those who love Him. Hope is a defiant reliance on God keeping His word, that He'll make all things work together for our good. That He's turning all the hard things into good things. That it promises that the best things are still up ahead. And He says that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come for us. One commentator says it like this. Hope is confidence in grace's future accomplishment. And faith is understanding what grace is doing right now. While faith is the current possession of grace in the present, hope is the accomplishment of grace for the future. And I love that because it just goes to show that faith and hope work together, that they function almost like a cycle. Faith is the understanding of what God is doing in your life right now and what He has done. And that leads into hope that God will do the same in the future. And hope is the understanding that Jesus is unchanging, that His purposes for you never waver, that His love for you is the same. And so that leads into faith in the present moment that He's working in all seasons to get you there. And so it's this constant cycle that hope feeds faith and faith it's hope, and hope feeds faith, and faith feeds hope. And a lot of times, I think when we think about hope and faith, uh, we naturally associate it with the future, right? And when we think about walking to the future, a lot of times it's like braving the unknown. You're not really sure what's ahead. You don't know what's coming up. And I'm just going to just keep moving forward, and hopefully I'll be all right. I won't stumble and fall. But did you know that in the Hebrew culture, faith and hope are actually talked about in completely different ways compared to the modern culture? You see, in the Hebrew culture, the past is thought as, what is in front of me? Because you can see the events that have already taken place. And for the future, the Hebrew understanding is that the future is what lies behind me. Because the events have yet to take place. It has yet to unfold. And therefore, you can't see what is going to take place. So imagine with me right now, this is a time continuum right here. That you have the, you have the past right here, and you have the future. And so for the Hebrews... Walking into the future is kind of like walking backwards with your back towards the future. That it doesn't matter what lies, behind, what lies behind us because all you need to do is look at what's in front of you and what has already taken place. And so why is this important? What does this have to do with faith and hope? Well, so many times, I think when we think of the future and what lies up ahead, we're like, ah, oh, we don't know what's going to happen. But all we need to be reminded is what God has done for in the past. So when you're in an overwhelming circumstance like Ahaz, like the people of God in Matthew chapter 1, like what 2018 might have been for you, and you think about the future, the future can seem dark. 
The future can seem hopeless. The future seems like nothing's going to change, right? But when we think about the future as walking backwards and the past is in front of us, we can see the faithful, ongoing love of God. That, hey, I remember the time that God healed me. And it gives you hope to walk into the future. I remember the time that God provided for me financially. I remember the time when God healed and restored all my relationships. I remember the time when it came through for marriage. I remember the time when God answered my prayer. I remember the time that God loved me so much he sent his one and only son. I remember the time that God loved me so much that he sent his son to die for us. I remember the time that God loved me so much that he sent his spirit so I would never, ever be alone again. And that gives us hope to walk into the future with our eyes focused on what has been, knowing that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Because he's Emmanuel. He will not change. His purposes towards you will never falter. And he's going to walk with you through every season. And this is our hope, that we can walk into a future facing backwards, that it doesn't matter what lies behind us. It doesn't matter what the future holds. Because when I look at the past, the past is the same thing over and over and over again. That Christ is for me and that Christ is with me. And that nothing will separate me from the love of Christ. Amen? Amen. And so hopelessness and fear may try to convince you that nothing will change, nothing will improve. But faith looks back and draws courage. And hope looks ahead and keeps the desire the expectation that God will do what he says he will do alive. And they both tell me that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. But in life, we're all going to face disappointments. The truth is, is that on this side of heaven, you're not going to see deliverance from circumstances. Sometimes we're going to experience that. Sometimes we're going to take losses. Sometimes pain is going to hit so close to home. And the prayers that we've been praying won't get answered. But perhaps that's why Apostle Paul, he says, in trying circumstances, do what? To keep your eyes on Jesus, who? The author and perfecter of our what? Of our faith. Because in those moments, we have to remember that hope isn't that God guarantees us a life of bliss and perfection, but that in all seasons, in all trials, in all circumstances, that God is with us because he's Emmanuel. And so the question that we really have to struggle and wrestle with is this. Is God enough for you? Is his presence enough for you? When you're in those situations, when it feels like you have nothing else but the presence of God, is that enough for you? You might not see God move powerfully. You might not get healed. You might not see breakthrough. But is his presence enough? And I think when we can say yes to that, that's when hope abounds. That's when hope arises. You know, going back to the story I shared at the beginning with Pastor Willie, um, you know, that circumstance of death and confusion, it was so much greater than any one of us could have expected. It was such a huge curveball and a sucker punch right up to, to our guts, to our team, to that local church, and to that village. And imagine the next day, we had to be in the presence of his wife and his family and break the news that their husband, that their father had passed away. And so you can imagine what that moment was like, wailing, griefing. And we all had a choice to make in that moment of grief. Is God enough? Is he enough for me? Is he enough for us? You see, we didn't ask God, are you powerless? Because we fully believed in the power of God. We stayed up that night interceding for a resurrection. 
the Ivorian pastors, they stayed up all night until 8 a.m. in the morning at his feet praying for resurrection. Neither did we ask God, where are you? Because we knew that God was with us through the entire night. You know, that night at the revival worship service afterwards, 60 people got saved. That Jesus was showing up in visions to people. That people were getting healed and set free. And so we knew that God was with us. But the question that we really had to struggle and wrestle and deal with was this. Is God enough? And so with everyone that following morning, we worship God together. Not necessarily for his power, not necessarily for his might, but for his faithfulness and his presence. That he was with us through the entire moment. The chaos, the confusion, the death, the grief. And in that moment, we decided in our hearts, God, even still, even still, God, you are enough for me. You are enough for us. Your presence is enough. Can I just invite everyone to stand? hopelessness to one degree or another. And 2019 is going to be a year of victory. But I feel like a lot of us are carrying things from 2018 into 2019. But remember what Jesus said. Jesus said that you cannot pour new wine into old wineskins because both the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. So before God can do a new thing in you, you have to get rid of the that before you can step into the new year, a new year of victory, you actually have to shake off the dust from the previous year. You with me? And so for this, for tonight, I just felt like God wanted to make an exchange for you. I felt like God has 2019, lots of victories for you. But if you're stuck in the pattern and the cycle of hopelessness, you're going to miss out. That hopelessness will spoil your victory. But God wants you to have all the spoils of the victory that he has for you. So at this time, I just want to invite you. The Lord is willing to make an exchange for you. That if you would surrender the bitterness, the hopelessness, the anger, the misunderstanding that you've been carrying from 2018, that he's going to want to give you a crown, oil, joy. So at this time, I just want to invite anyone who just feels like you need to surrender, you need to let go of this, I just want to invite you to the front. That you can get on your knees, you can stand, whatever you need to do, I invite you to, this is an open space. But at this time, let's just lift up our prayers right now, and let's just come before the time of surrender, lay down those things that God is bringing up right now. Let's pray. So Lord, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Yeah, just come to the front. If you need to just have a time of surrender before the Lord, don't be afraid to come to the front. I'm telling you, he wants to break off the hopelessness. He wants this year to be a victory. But you have to shake off the dust. You have to make a declaration. By you coming up to the front, you're making a declaration that God, that this is a time where I'm shaking off those things. I'm shaking off those things, Lord. Yes, sir. Yeah. We thank you, Lord. We thank you. Yes. Yes. Yes, Lord. We lay down our grief. We lay down our burdens. We lay down the baggages. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening to Pursuit Cast. For more information on the ministry of Pursuit NYC, please visit us on the web at www.pursuitnyc.org. Revival or bust.